realizing that we didn't set our clocks back and some of us are traveling. So this is a small group here. We, we have the quorum, so whatever we say goes on this this morning. So that's, this is a unique opportunity. What's that? Oh, whatever. Yeah, did I say it wrong? I'm glad that Apple does it automatically for me. That's a, that's a nice thing. Can we pray together as we start here? Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies to us this morning that are new. Thank you for a new day of life. Thank you for the continued permanent reality uh, that, uh, that the cross represents for your people, that we are, we are justified in your sight because of his blood. Thank you for the hope and the peace that that gives us. And Lord, we pray for, for faithfulness, faithfulness this morning. Uh, in this time and in the service to come, that you would be pleased with what you see and hear, that your name would be glorified and made great. Uh, we thank you for what we're going to look at in, in this lesson this morning. We are amazed at the wisdom and the goodness of your purposes and your designs. Help us, Lord, to understand them and to cherish and embrace them. And we thank you for the blessing and the flourishing that you bring to mankind as we walk uh, after, after your ways. We ask for guarding and blessing on our conversation, our discussion this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, this is, this is not the last week for our study on this book, Men and Women in the Church. Uh, but this is, a, this is an interesting chapter. This, it seems to me almost to be... Um, a, you're going to see if you've been here through the study, in a lot of ways this is a summarization and a recap of a lot of what we've seen already in prior weeks, but maybe even more so, it seems like this is a chapter of, just one big chapter of application of, of the distinctions and the designs that we've been seeing as we have gone through de Young's book. And the way he, he structures it is he, he structures it all around the answering of a question. He, he wants us to imagine that, a, that our children are asking us, uh, Daddy, what does it look like for me to grow in godliness since he's made me as a boy? Daddy, what does it mean for me to be godly as a girl, as a woman? Uh, and the question is, I'm not going to speak right at you there, Joe. I'm going to slide over a little bit. The, the, the question is, as we answer that question for our boys and for our girls, is our answer going to be exactly the same for all of them in every way we would answer that question? Or are there some ways that, that we would answer that question differently if we're talking to our boys or talking to our girls? So it's phrased in that kind of a way. The chapter is called Grow, Growing Up as Boys and Girls. But obviously it's not, it's not a chapter that applies simply to parenting it, this is getting at the question, uh, does, it, does it make a difference that God has chosen to make me as male or female, uh, and I want to walk after him and, uh, and obey him? So th that's kind of the way that this is phrased, and what, what he does in the chapter is he breaks down his answer into five different categories. And so we'll just walk through those this morning. These are going to be areas that he sees there being distinctions in this. Obviously, there's a great amount of, of an answer to that kind of question about what godliness looks like that would be exactly the same for all of us, no matter, no matter if, if we are male or female. He's getting at ways that there might be distinctions in that answer. 
uh, you need your Bibles with you. We're going to look at, at in a couple of passages in particular at different points here this morning. Um, and I'll tell you when we, when we get there. Five categories. Two of the first two are external or physical categories, and the last three are internal. So that's kind of the way we're, we're going here. The first area that he brings up is simply the area of our bodily realities. Uh, and his point in that section is pretty simple. It's that men's and women's bodies are different. We actually live in a time where such things are, uh, are surprising. When, when a man swims in women's teams and goes from, I think he went from something like ranked 470th, if you heard about that, to, to, to immediately the number one swimmer in women's swimming. There's surprise that such a thing would, would come up. But lo and behold, there are actually differences in our, in our physical realities. Um, and the, the point he's bringing up in this section that is really helpful and kind of undergirds some of what we're going to see later this morning, too, is simply the reality that there's not just differences between men and women in our bodies, but that those differences are clearly designed to complement one another. They are complementary differences, as God has made us male and female, even on the physical level. So you think about the fulfilling of the, of the, of the mandate given to mankind to... Uh, to um, um, <laughs> Um, I just, what is the, be fruitful and multiply, thank you. Yes, that one. I think the Bible says that somewhere. Um, you, you think about that, that mandate, right? Uh, biology 101, two men cannot come together and create life. Two women cannot come together and create life. Um, and in a, I was almost a bit disappointed in this section because that's, that's, all, that's essentially all that he does in this opening section about body and complementary differences. Uh, but I would want to add a little bit to it. And just, uh, I, w- I was just thinking about the observation that even in the ability for, for us to fulfill that creation mandate, uh, we find success through one another's differences. And that goes beyond even simply procreation. Uh, certainly, Adam cannot fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply without Eve, and neither Eve without Adam. But think even past that. When, when, when Eve is pregnant, when she is, is fulfilling the creation mandate, the mandate to multiply and fill the earth in the way that only she can, she is immediately put at a uh, a vulnerable position, a, a, a disadvantage in, in a number of ways. Think of what it is to be pregnant and the realities of living in the physical world when you're pregnant. Think of what it is to be living and having a young, small child with you and the difficulties that that, um, that, that can create. If, if the Lord provides her with a husband, with a, with a counterpart in a man, uh, who has roughly 20 times the testosterone level that she does and all of the consequences physically that that brings with it, who has on average six inches of height on her, uh, a larger heart and higher lung capacity. Um, in other words, if God intends, as we've seen in this study, for Adam to lead and protect his wife, we would expect to see the sorts of 
physical differences that correspond to those complementary roles. Think of what it would be, think of the alternative. How, how much, how, how confusing it would be to us if God made Adam and Eve and declared these roles of them one to another, roles of headship and submission that we've seen, roles of protecting and providing for, for, for the, the husband. And then he created Eve with tremendous uh, surpassing physical strength and ability and, and size. That would be strange to, ent- to entrust to him leadership and protection and to grant her this, this altogether different physical makeup. Do you see, that would not fit. But what God has done in our physical creation is he has, he has, uh, he has given us a complementary picture that perfectly fits the very design that he has for us as men and women. It just, what do you know? It makes sense what God has done. Uh, we can see it confirmed with our eyes, the, the commands and the roles that he has called us to in his word. So, and in terms of the, the driving question for the morning then, as we're thinking about this first section of, of body, we would want to teach our children to recognize those differences between boys and girls, not to act as if they don't exist, not to resent those differences, or see them as something that needs to be overcome, right? I, would, I think that's almost, maybe that's, that last thing is a great way to describe one of the driving goals of the society around us right now that can't help but acknowledge that there are some differences, but it, it chooses to view them as differences that need to be overcome. Um, so that any commercial you see today where anyone's doing something physical and working out, it's going to be a woman, right? There, there's, there needs to be some way to, uh, to overcome these things. We want to teach our children very differently than that, that these differences are from God, they are good, and, uh, and they are wise. So we're training them to thank God for those differences. Uh, now, the, the second category is very similar to the first, but let me just stop. I'm going to try to stop at each one and give room for comments and, and questions. Any thoughts coming out of what he has said or what I've said about body and differences regarding the body? It, it's the commitment to, uh, to the narrative. But what, what, what's interesting, when you look into the on-the-ground situations of those things, there are, there are a lot of people, who, those who are being affected by it are speaking up and crying foul. You're not, we, we don't, it's, not the, it's not the leading story. But those are not even believers. We, 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 there's a sense in which I'm almost, I'm almost thankful for some of what is happening in those ways because it is taking, I mean, these things are, should be obvious, but we're really good at hiding them. This is taking them and thrusting them into everybody's face. The, the unavoidable nature of how God has created and how inescapable it is. Now, the, I, I have, yes, that's got to be the best children's story ever written. Uh, the emperor has no clothes on. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Any, any other thoughts or comments? We, we, we stick with this, but we expand it a little bit in the second category. The second category is appearance. That includes body, but it's more than body. We, we could think of clothing. We could, think of, um, we could even think of 
of certain behaviors. So this, this second category he's bringing up has to do with the, the way that we present ourselves to the world around us. Um, and at this point, DeYoung, and I, I really appreciate that he does this. He, he, if, if you, I don't know if you've been reading the book. It's fine if you haven't. But one of the things I appreciate about him a great deal is that it seems like he is very intentional to, 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 to think broadly and to be, um, to be rightly even-handed, if that makes sense. And one of the things he does in this section that I appreciate is he spends some time talking about stereotypes. Uh, he, he talks about how stereotypes can be damaging because of the ways that they uh, wrongly uh, created and handled can uh, blur over inevitable differences in groups. Uh, but he also talks about how just the reality that stereotypes inevitably come from somewhere and often reveal something about the basic shapes and patterns of the world. So this is the first place, I think there are three, that I'm going to just read to you out of the book. I think it's, it's easy to, to follow what he's saying. Um, let me read just a bit here. He says, most enduring stereotypes probably reflect a complex mixture of culture and nature. Do all girls like playing with dolls? No, but most do, and from a very young age prior to intense socialization. Do all boys turn sticks into swords and guns? No, but most do, and more so than girls. There's a reason you don't hear moms telling their boys, be careful in playing with those girls. They're too rough. So how might this apply in our day? Hopefully we might all agree with at least some examples. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears a cocktail dress, it is a disgrace for him? Does not nature itself teach us that if a man puts on lipstick, it is a disgrace for him? In our cultural context, these actions express femininity, not masculinity. Now, this is very important. Pastors, parents, and church leaders must be extraordinarily thoughtful on this point. Can real men enjoy musical theater, ballet, or shopping? Of course they can. On the other hand, if you were discipling a young man who told you he wears pink pajamas, he loves to get his nails done every week, and he would make his wife confront an intruder in the home, you may need to have a conversation about whether he's appropriately expressing his masculinity. Yes, I know, this is the last thing he says here. Yes, I know some of the examples are culturally situated. The Bible, of course, makes no explicit prohibitions against men being decked out all in pink. And yet, if masculinity and femininity are going to have any conceptual content, we cannot avoid certain cultural cues. This makes pastoring and parenting difficult. How to say something practical about masculinity and femininity without being overly rigid. But it wouldn't be the first area where we need wisdom to apply broad principles into specific areas. And I'll stop there. And before I open up for some questions and comments here, I think that that last statement that he mentions about uh, the need for wisdom often to apply broad principles into specific areas. I think it's one of the more important things that he says there. Uh, I would suggest to you that there is a, a 
a very real trap that, is often, that we often fall into, and we must not fall into it here. It would be a trap that says uh, that because a broad principle is hard to figure out how it fits into specific areas, because it's difficult to do that, that that means that the broad principle itself is wrong or is optional. We cannot fall into that trap. It is inevitably the case, most of the time, that broad principles, when, when applied in small specific areas, there can be difficulty and wisdom figuring out how to apply it. That says nothing about the truthfulness of that or the reality of that broad principle. And so it's just something we need to be very careful about there. Now, what, what thoughts, questions, comments come to your mind as we, as we talk about this area? As, again, this is one of the areas that he's saying there, are going, there need be distinctions and differences for godly men and women in this realm, in the realm of appearance. It needs to matter to us that there is clear distinctions between masculinity and femininity how that parses out can be difficult and there can be nuance, but we need to have these categories. What, what are your thoughts? <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I, those, are good, those are good examples, I think, of some of the narrow areas where there are going to be difficulties. Um, part of the reason for that, I think... Um, Well, I just lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? <sighs> it seems like this is happening more and more often. Um, just a second. Hang on. It's going to come back here. Um, that's, that's, what, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I think I remember what I was going to say. There, there, there's some distinctions we have to make. Um, because we're, we're talking about things that can happen or ought to happen. Are we talking about moral principles? This is almost, in a sense, sort of like the difference between moral law and positive law. Um, some of these, these manifestations of masculine and feminine, there's nothing inherently um, moral about, about any of those things. The wearing of pink is a good example of that. There's, there's nothing in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with the color pink for anybody. It's not a question of rightness or wrongness in that way. It's a question of, of, of the, the need for us to be sensitive to, in our own culture, what has emerged as the markers, the cues of male-female distinctions, of masculine-feminine, that sort of thing. Um, I would think that in typical times, those things are fairly well established, and we kind of just, we, we know how to how to fit into the, who God has made us to be, and on we go. We're living in a time now where that's, that is an active, there's an active war against those things. I was going to, I almost wish I had now, um, I was going to show a, uh, a commercial from, I think it was from 2015, but it was, it was talking about the, uh, the pushes in, in our, um, um, in fashion, the fashion industry for, for androgynous clothing, um, you know, th those sorts of things. This is, this, is what, this is the direction everything is going. And so what it's doing is it's causing us to, I mean, if that succeeds, we're losing markers of distinction, and that's going to make some of this even more difficult. Right? That's right. 
And to me, it, what's exhausting about that is, or what is tempting to me, is it makes me feel like we're moving into a situation where we're going to have to reinvent the wheel, in a sense. Um, it's a shame if, it, if loss gets to that point. But in, in another way, there's some opportunity there, because as Christians, then, we can go back to the Scriptures and say, what are the the God-given distinctions that, that we're supposed to be representing in whatever these cultural manifestations are. Well, what are those distinctions? Um, and then, and then uh, that's why I call it reinventing the wheel. There's, in that sense, there's now a rediscovery of how are we going to distinguish uh, when God makes someone male or female, and there have to be these cultural expressions of that. Um, now, some of that, when he talks about the negative aspects of stereotypes, some of that can be cleansing and, and good. I mean, there's, if we're coming out of a time when cooking was off limits to men, I mean, I've eaten enough really good ribs from David Vessel to rejoice in that uh, if culture told David not to cook, we would all be the worse for it. You know? So there's, there, there are some, some good things like that. Well, that's true. I might be thinner. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think one question, and, and I'll, unless there's someone else, we'll move on to the next section after this, but um, do you remember what he said about, on the other hand, if you were discipling a young man who you might need to have a conversation with him about whether he's appropriately expressing his masculinity? It, it occurred to me, you know, if, if, if we wrestle with any of those things, which I, I, I wouldn't, but... Um, if, as we're wrestling with this whole issue itself, the thought struck me, we, we have to decide whether there is anything that would inevitably go into that blank spot. What, what are the behaviors and, um, and, and ways of presenting oneself to the world? What are those in the life of a male that would lead us to feel the need to say, Brother, let's go get coffee and let's 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 talk. If there is nothing, then then we've then we have just surrendered the distinction that God has intended in creating us male and female. We cannot let there be nothing. Um, th- these are these are battles worth worth the effort of trying to take the broad realities that God has clearly given us, the differences between men and women, and doing the hard work to, to to figure out how do these apply in specific situations. We just have to do it if we're going to be faithful. Yeah, that's true. The, the, I don't know why, but the thought that comes to my mind is, you say, you say never. I'm thinking, what, what, what will be the effect in 20 years when we've had girls who have been taking testosterone since they were 10, and we've had boys that have been having hormone blockers? Uh, you put them together, one might pick, pick up the other. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that we ought to come up with a list in a, in a literal way. I, was re- I think I was referring to the list that he gave there of getting your nails done every week and having his wife go out with the baseball bat to investigate, the, to go around and confront it everywhere I see it. Oh, I think, yeah, absolutely. Wisdom and how we're going to... Uh, and there's two, there's two issues there. There's the issue of the wider culture and, and our place, and then there's the issue of, the, of, of our own churches and... Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Um, for the sake of time, let's, let's push on. You're going to see these build on each other. They're not really, um, un they're never unrelated to each other. Uh, those first two were external in the physical world. The last three are internal. I think these three are the more difficult of the five as we're exploring and he's suggesting different answers to this question of godliness and of, of, uh, of these distinctions. So maybe there'll be even more to, to discuss. The third category that he brings up, he calls it eager posture. And what he's doing in this one is he's drawing from what we've seen in Scripture concerning commands toward headship and submission. So he's talking specifically to, um, to our posture and response to the differences in uh, husband-wife callings within, within a family. So this would stem from passages like when we've had whole, whole um, Sunday mornings on these, right? Genesis 1 and 2, the testimony that Adam was created before Eve and even named Eve, that she was made to be a suitable helper for Adam, um, as well as New Testament descriptions like 1 Corinthians 11, uh, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. I'm just reminding you of the sorts of statements that, that set these up. Uh, we haven't looked much, and we'll look at it much more here soon, at 1 Peter 3. But Peter's descriptions of godly women in 1 Peter 3 would be another place uh, where their adornment, he says, is to be the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then he says in verse 5, uh, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Adam, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, and he makes in this chapter, as he's bringing up this idea of eager posture, he makes what I think are very important points when he describes what he means by posture and when he says that we should be encouraging our children toward this eager posture that corresponds with those roles. So this is the second of the three places I'm going to read to you from here. De Young says, I use the word posture deliberately. Posture is a flexible thing. You can slouch, you can sit upright, lean in or lean back. I use the word posture because we're not talking about an inflexible office, but about an inclination. The wife should be willing to be led and the husband eager to take the sacrificial initiative to lead. It would be wrong, sinful even, for a husband to tell his wife, you're the helper, I don't help you. The fact that men were created to lead does not mean that men lead to the exclusion of helping or that women help and are never able to exercise leadership. Instead, I'm simply noting that male leading and female helping is what men and women should be intentional to find and eager to accept. This is what he means by eager posture. And so you can tell the, the call here, as he's thinking in this chapter in terms of us raising our boys and girls, the, the call is to, um, to, to speak about these God-given distinctions and roles excitedly, to speak about the blessing of them and the complementary and, uh, and flourishing that comes out of a properly ordered distinction that he's given in these particular roles. I wrote a little note here to myself, and now I can't read it. Oh, well, I was going to say that this, so that, that's very specific 
um, counsel to parents of children, right? Uh, but because because we're describing uh, because we're describing differences that get at the level not simply of of um, of husbands and wives, but of men and women. This is something. This is an ideal that that ought to be heard and imbibed even by those who are not parents themselves, or even those who are single. That our our goal is to be uh, living and. Um, and portraying in how we interact with one another the goodness of God's intentions, that, that as our kids are in with, with, other, uh, with other adults in the church, that, that these distinctions are held up as, as blessings from God and as, as, uh, as, as good. Uh, so that's eager posture. Uh, any thoughts or comments before we go to the fourth one? No. How about this one? Uh, the, the fourth one is, is, he calls it demeanor. So he's, he's speaking about, about distinctions in godly demeanor between men and women. I think, uh, well, I'll tell you, this is the section that I wrestled with the most. I think it's the hardest section of the chapter. Uh, there's, uh, I don't mean that I disagree with him, but... Um, th- I guess what I mean is, it seems to me this is the one of all of them that could be most prone to either misunderstanding or to misuse. Maybe that's a good way to, to say it. And so I, I'm hoping, so my, my intention is for us to take a few minutes and just lay out what he says in its entirety here and then uh, uh, consider it together, what, what, what might be the true and good distinctions that he's bringing up that we can take from this. Uh, and having said that this is a difficult one, what he does is actually pretty simple. He, he lays out descriptions that we find in 1 Thessalonians 2. So here, please open to 1 Thessalonians 2. And there are two different uh, sections here that I'm going to read. One is verses 7 and 8, and the other is verses 11 and 12. Now you're going to hear he's talking in both of these about his ministry to the Thessalonians, and he's picking metaphors to use to describe his ministry. So 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then go down to verse 11 still talking about his ministry to them. And he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, you, you notice the distinctions right off there. He's, he's describing different things about his interactions toward them. And as he's describing certain things, certain pictures come to his mind. And this is what he does with those metaphors. This is the third and final place that I will read to you from the book here. I try not to do that in these, but sometimes it, it's, uh, I think it's better than what I might paraphrase. So he's speaking about these passages. He says, notice what Paul is doing in these passages. First, he describes his own ministry among the Thessalonians like that of a nursing mother, gentle, affectionate, sacrificial. 
Second, he describes his ministry as fatherly, full of exhortation, encouragement, and leadership. Paul identifies these demeanors as corresponding with one gender more than the other. Paul is not suggesting that one set of virtues is exclusively feminine or exclusively masculine. After all, he's describing himself as ministering like a nursing mother. At the same time, Paul clearly suggests that certain demeanors fall naturally along gender lines. When Paul thinks of nurture, affection, and gentleness, he thinks of a mother. When he thinks of exhortation, discipline, and charge, he thinks of a father. Yes, each man and each woman is unique, but no matter our personality types, fathering is generally marked by a hortatory demeanor, a demeanor of charge and instruction and guidance. And mothering is marked by gentleness, which is saying something given the people that moms work with every day. Ultimately, in Paul's mind, a mom has a certain demeanor and a father has a different type of demeanor. And these demeanors correspond with the natural inclinations of their gender. Now, I think that there are some things there that are extremely helpful to us so long as we do justice to the, to the qualifications that he has made in there. Let me remind you of them. He said he's not saying, and Paul is not saying, that one set of those virtues is exclusively masculine or feminine. Simply that they, they, they fit the picture, a, a particular picture of mother or father. He also said each man and woman is unique. But he said fathering is marked generally by a hortatory demeanor, mothering by a by gentleness. So the distinctions that he's that he's suggesting we see in places like First Thessalonians two. Now, as I am going through that section, I I have a caution and a commendation. So I'll share these with you, and I'm interested to know what you think. If there's any value in these, or or if I'm way off. Caution first in terms of what I just read from Kevin DeYoung. So far as I can see, I think there are three potential problems that we have to take into account as we're thinking about this category of demeanor and, and God's calling on men and women to particular demeanors. Number one, these there's not in the chapter, this is all me here, so I can't blame Kevin DeYoung for these. But in terms of a caution, uh, potential problems, the first one, uh, all of what I just read has been described in the context of parenting and is very much linked to mothering and fathering. But he's naming this as a category of God-given distinctions between boys and girls, not just between mothers and fathers in that particular parenting role. We have to recognize that, and that has to be a part of the conversation as we're thinking about how we might apply this. Uh, number two, when he says... At the very end of what I read, he said, Though these demeanors correspond with the natural inclinations of their gender. The thought that occurred to me is we have to be sure. I mean, our goal is to be being honest, right? And to be representing reality faithfully, uh, how God has made us. We have to be sure we're acknowledging the natural spectrum that exists among men and among women. So there are women who are more naturally gentle than other women, and so on, right? Uh, and the same thing for men in these kinds of characteristics. Uh, the third caution that came to my mind, it's related to that. Think of that, 
I said there are more and less gentle women. Think of that less gentle woman. She should strive to be more gentle. But men are also called to gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, men are called to, to that, uh, to, to a particular gentle demeanor as well. Now, that does not mean that gentleness is going to be expressed in exactly the same ways and forms from, what, from a man to a woman, and that may be where a lot of the differences are going to be noticed. But I'm just talking about caution in terms of how we might talk about these things. It's not fair. We could talk about these things in a way that is, that is dishonest or that, that isn't, isn't fair to the realities of, of the distinction. So, I don't know. I, I felt compelled to, to mention those things, and I'm curious to hear uh, to hear your thoughts as well. Um, in fact, I'll stop. I have the commendation next here from what I just read. What, what are your, what's going through your head as, you're, as you heard what I read from DeYoung? I can reread some of it too if it's been a bit. Uh, what are your thoughts and comments, questions? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the question is simply, to me, the question is, is the young being, being, is he exegeting that passage in 1 Thessalonians accurately here? Because he's really going off of those kinds of descriptions and, and suggesting that God has in mind a, a particular and distinct demeanor for, for men and women. Um, in the way he's describing it, if he were wrong about that, it would have nothing, no impact on the other categories. And I think that's especially important when we get to the, f the last category here in just a moment to, to, make that, to make that distinction. I'm not saying, by the way, that I think he's wrong. I, I don't know that, I don't think he's wrong in what, in what I just read. I think he's right. I just think it's, it's one of those broad to specific areas that, we, that is difficult and that we have to be cautious about. Apparently it was something that needed instruction then, then too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and there, there, I started to say a number of things in prepping this week that I went through and removed and deleted. Um, <laughs> I think I had three, well, anyway. Um, um, and I think this comes up more in the fifth category we'll get to as well, but as we're talking about the spectrum among men and the spectrum among women, there's, there's a, an inescapable truth to that. Um, it seems to me one of the things that, that we've, we're very tempted toward today, because the, the great goal is to highlight differences wherever they are, um, is, is to say, is to use that reality to say, therefore, uh, whatever my, pro, my natural proclivities are, that's the base, that's the starting point. That must be okay, and we need to figure out how where I fit in things in light of that. And I hope we all can see how, how wrong-headed that is as well. It may be that I have personality, I can name some for you, <laughs> personality traits of mine that I've had my whole life that I need to grow in, I need to change. Uh, and the fact that, that's, that that is what is what occurs naturally to me does not at all um, give me a pass when I see God's word commend me as a man in a particular direction. It might mean it's harder for me than others, and the Lord is gracious, but, but I don't get confused in this way. I don't reevaluate 
what he has commanded on the basis of what I find to be natural to me. I certainly don't redefine the distinctions when I see them here. So I don't know if that adds to what, what you said. Absolutely. It makes me think of four, four categories. Let's take the leading of the wife. You have men who lead their wives by domineering them and sinning against them. You have men who refuse to lead their wives and sin in that way. You have, uh, you have men who lead their wives, um, we could say, I guess, in this hypothetical, who lead their wives, um, it, it, you know what I mean, in a way that is not sinful. I'm saying there's no sin, but that is not sinful, but that the nature of that dynamic is, is more, in terms of their personalities and, and how they, they interact, it is more direct leadership. And you have men who are not sinning, whose leadership as much is different than that, is a softer um, demeanor, perhaps, or something like that. That's part of, I think, what I wrestled with is the word demeanor, it, it, takes, it takes some of the role out and just focuses on the person, on maybe the personality. Um, and that's where it, it, it really, you, you can be in very great danger, I think, of saying too much, saying more than, we're, than we ought to say. That's right. That, that's where the, the hair conversation, it, it, so much is added to it in that kind of a way. Just the very fact that there are short feminine haircuts and there are longer masculine haircuts. It's not about the number of inches on the hair. It's about, am I embracing who God has made me and am I making plain to those around me in the ways that they recognize m men and women? Am I, am I representing who God's made me well? I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, let, let me bring up the commendation of, of what I just read. I almost feel like I should reread it because it's been several minutes. But um, I, don't, I think we'll be okay. Here's what I would say on the demeanor side of this. That, um, there is something very right and good about the recognition that we should be leading and encouraging our boys and our girls in, in some of these specific ways to, to be growing up with with differences in, I'm going to use this word demeanor. I'll give you an example so that I'm clear about what, about what I'm referring to. The best example I can think of is the way that females are portrayed, so far as it seems to me, in every movie that has come out in the last five years, ten years. Um, I mean the sorts of traits that are glorified. Right? You could say the, the, the particular demeanor that is glorified by, by female roles in the big blockbuster movies. It has been years since a girl has sensed the need to be rescued by a guy. Um, usually the opposite is happening. If someone needs rescuing, she's getting in there and she's rescuing him who needs her. Or they're equally working together to solve a problem. And by equally working together, I mean fists and elbows flying, um, men three times her size being taken over her shoulder and just dismantled by her intensity. Uh, there's, there's bodily nonsense and, and, and confusions there, but you, that goes with a look on a face, right? If we're talking about demeanor, there's a demeanor that comes along with all of that. Um, and not only are those scenes completely physically inaccurate, obviously, but I would suggest that they are actively seeking to lead our girls astray as that sort of picture of virtue is held out to them. Um, 
and I put, I put a qualification in here. Don't get me wrong. If, if I am out of town and Candace and the boys are at home and some guy breaks in the house and tries to hurt them, I sincerely hope that she uses every means at her disposal to create a shock and awe situation there in the kitchen and to just undo this guy. I hope that that is what happens. I, I trust Landry will jump in there if need be. But she, she is protecting our children. This will be a wonderful thing. But I don't believe that God has made her and intended her to watch those massive fight scenes and daydream about having that kind of an attitude, uh, that kind of physical intensity and a capacity for violence. There, there is something happening there that is, that is disturbing, and it's disturbing in a different way than it is disturbing if I had my boys watch that violent movie. That violence is, is certainly, in the, you know what I mean by that, is training our boys toward ungodly things too. Be training them toward uncontrolled rage maybe or a thirst for violence. That's, that's not what I want for my boys. But what I'm saying is it's not the same. With them, there are some bad things happening there in terms of influence, but it is not encouraging them to upend the created order. And that's exactly what's being attempted when this is aimed at our girls. It's wrong at another level altogether. What's going on in that really intentional media shift is an effort to retrain our girls' demeanors. I think that that is a very fair way to describe that. Which, by the way, also trains our boys to think of girls in different ways, doesn't it? It doesn't just have an impact on the girls and their thoughts of themselves. It impacts the way that our boys think of girls. I, I don't think I'm overstating things when I call that effort demonic. I find that to be utterly demonic, an attack like that at this level and aimed against our girls. Um, it, it, it should, I think it should be infuriating to us. That was the best I could do to think of an example as to the notion that godliness cultivated in boys and girls will, show, will present differences as we are cultivating particular demeanors. What exact, does that mean no pink shirts? That's not what we're talking about, right? Um, does it mean girls are delicate flowers that break it? We're not talking about that either, right? But we are talking about a sense of distinction in, uh, that, that gets even to the level of of, in some way, of attitude and of, and of my presentation of myself. Now, we, I almost want to go directly into the last, in fact, we will, wow, because when we have six minutes left, the, the last section here, because they go together completely. I think this last section finishes the demeanor section. So let's do that, and then if there's time, we can get some questions. Um, the last category he calls character. And, and that confused me at first. Character, godly character is a distinction between men and women. I'm going to put in a word that he uses in, the, in that section. I wish he'd put it in the subtitle. Uh, crowning characteristic is, is really what he's getting at. Um, one way, I think, to open this section is to ask the question, um, does God in his word, we already know it because we just saw some of it, does God in his word only ever speak to us collectively, men, women together, and give us commands? Or does he sometimes address men and sometimes address women? 
What's the answer to that? He sometimes addresses men and women individually, right? Um, when he addresses us differently, uh, separately, does he say the same things? Or does he ever say different things, different commands when he addresses men or women? And if the answer is he says some different things, then the question is, why is he saying different things? If, if what he is calling us to is, is the same. It can't be that, because he speaks to us individually, I mean, in our groups, and he says different things at a number of places. Uh, in particular, what we'll look at in this section is 1 Peter 3. So go to 1 Peter 3. I'll read the first seven verses. And what we're looking for is, what are the sorts of traits? You could say demeanor here, or emphases of character. Maybe that's even a better way to say it. What is being emphasized and being held up for us to pursue? Okay? So the first seven verses of 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they they may be won without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what qualities are women and men guided toward in this passage compared to each other? We see women being guided toward things like respectful behavior, purity, and gentleness. And men are guided to show honor, to be understanding, and to exercise caring leadership. And leadership in the context of a strength disparity. You honor her as the weaker vessel. Yeah, they're specifically uh, encouraged not to give in to fear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Husbands are not enjoined to take their wives, the weaker vessel, and work them in order to increase their strength. Take that weaker vessel and just strengthen it up, shore up those, those distinctions. What they're told to do with that weakness is they're told to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. So, the, and I think it's important that we understand that all of those sorts of things say things about the nature of the weakness that he's describing there. Uh, this weakness is not the weakness of something that is to be disrespected, used up, thrown away. There are different kinds of weakness. Uh, this, is, this is a picture I've heard elsewhere, so it's not mine, but um, I, I find it really helpful. This is not, there's a toilet paper roll kind of weakness. That, that is, because of its weakness, it's also not valuable and it's used. Um, this is a weakness that inherently brings glory with it. And thus, it's to be protected and honored. So it's more of a uh, priceless vase on the mantelpiece kind of weakness. 
That, that, that vase has its own type of inherent weakness in it. And the, by virtue of that weakness, in part, it is as valuable as it is and is to be put on display as opposed to, say, the $20 sledgehammer in the garage with, with dirt on it. That thing is much stronger, uh, and it is much less valuable even in that way, and it is not receiving the same honor. Uh, the weakness that he's describing here is something to be honored. And that one comparison Peter gives that centers around relative levels of strength there when he speaks to the husbands, coupled with the other qualities like gentle and quiet spirit on the one hand, caring leadership on the other, leads to Young to say this. De Young says that the crowning characteristic of each is described differently then and is characterized differently. He suggests that the crowning characteristic of, of, of men is true, is characterized in places like this, or could be, as true inner strength. And the crowning characteristic for women is characterized as true inner beauty. The ideas of strength and beauty, which come up in a number of other places as we are described. And this is what he says there. He says, the word crown is important. I'm not suggesting that true strength and true beauty are the only things to say about men and women, just like a crown is not the only piece of a monarch's regalia, but it is usually the distinctive piece. These are the traits, in other words, that perhaps best summarize what we ought to desire to put forward to the world. It does not sum us up in its totality, but it's, it's, there are certain traits that we are meant to uh, of character that are meant to be reflective and representative, that we ought to be proud of. Or you could say that these are the terms that help us shape the way we live out all of the other traits. So gentleness has come up several times. I think that's a good, a good example. There is a, we'll go back to father, mother. There's a fatherly way to be gentle with a child that is not the same as a motherly way to be gentle with a child. Those are the sorts of differences that I think we're helped with if we think about the existence of crowning characteristics and that they are not spoken of as the same. Uh, I, I wonder, um, I'm just in closing here because we're out of time. Uh, have you been struck, as we've talked about this this morning, with the notion that we may well have been far more influenced by the air of the surrounding culture than we would like to think or than we're even aware of. It's probably inescapable. Uh, and, and as we talk about these things, we're talking about one of the most fundamental rebellions against the Creator today. And one of the most fundamental ways in which the entire Christian worldview is being clawed at with fury today. And I, I just hope it's obvious to us. So we've talked a lot about children, about how to teach the next generation. But whether it's your own kids or, or the role you have in modeling and training the young in this congregation and in, in, in your spheres, we have to recognize that we are completely incapable and unqualified to model and train if we do not have a settled sense ourselves of what God intended when he made man and chose to make man male and female. There are intentions here. And if we don't understand them and grasp them ourselves, we cannot pass on what we don't have ourselves. These are, what we've seen is corresponding and complementary differences. 
that God has given to us. So the question I think we need to be leaving with is what do we do with God's word as it informs us about the great good that God intended to work through you when he made you as a woman or when he made you as a man? Um, And as we come to better understand what he's told us about his intentions, let's cultivate a quickness to become excited at his purposes and at the chance to walk in step with his purposes. Any uh, burning final question or comment here, if it's like a 30-second answer? That's a way to ask for questions and not ask for questions at the same time. We have um, one more week of this study and then into the next one. So thank you guys so much. We're finished for now.